Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Hey, Movement Church. It's Josh Tandy here, and welcome to uh, Movement Church Online. Today is Palm Sunday, and we're in week three of a series called Out of the Shadows and Into the Light. This is our Easter series, and we can't wait to uh, wrap things up and celebrate Easter next Sunday with you. Uh, But if you're joining us for the first time, just by way of review, what we've been doing these past two weeks in, uh, in this series is looking at some characters that are on the edge of the story. The story of Jesus going to the cross, the story of Jesus being resurrected. We're looking at the people that are kind of there, and we wonder, how did they respond? Uh, what changed because of how they experienced something? And so we looked in that first week at this man named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary, a terrorist, an insurgent, a murderer. Uh, he was somebody who was, who was gathering people together to try to overthrow the Roman occupiers. And Barabbas was in jail when Jesus shows up to jail that early Good Friday morning. And in that moment, the crowds demand that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. So what was it like for him? Last week, we looked at, and Keith did such a good job of this, we looked at the idea or the, the person of the servant girl. The servant girl who was in Caiaphas's house, Caiaphas the high priest, who was, who, she was there and she witnessed everything that was going on. And this happened probably late Thursday night, early Friday morning. And she is there in the temple court, so outside of Caiaphas's home, outside of, in, the, in the courtyard there. And Peter is one of the disciples who, have, who has followed at a distance Jesus in this procession to the sham trial. And she is there, and she is warming herself by the fire, and she recognizes Peter, and three times, essentially, Peter denies knowing Jesus. And today we're looking at a third character. And this character had a front row seat, a front row seat to the, cru- to the cross and to the crucifixion. In fact, he was probably in charge of it. And we simply know him as the centurion. And so we're going to be looking at his story, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but we're mainly going to be in Matthew chapter 27, with a little bit in John chapter 19. So hear this story. We begin in Matthew 27, verse 32. It says, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then a little bit later, Matthew tells us that from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the story continue in John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. It says, Later, Knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Going back over to Matthew chapter 27. 
Starting in verse 51, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The centurion... He was a highly respected, highly regarded person in the Roman world. He's reached essentially the highest rank a soldier, a non-commissioned officer, could attain commanding a battalion of over 100 men. Now, like, like any military throughout history, it's people like this centurion, this soldier, who, who keep things going. They are the backbone. They are the heartbeat. I, they are the ones that get things done and know what's really going on. I think we can assume that the soldier, the centurion, had seen some things. I don't think he was an idealist, at least not anymore. Sure, he was probably motivated highly by duty and honor, but I also think that he was a realist. And it was the reality on the ground, and not loyalty to some emperor far away. And it was that loyalty to his fellow soldier that motivated him. He was respected, he was looked to for leadership. I think he was listened to. Now, with that respect came this huge responsibility that he had. And one of those responsibilities that he had in this situation was conducting executions, particularly crucifixions, the Roman mode of that. I think this is a task that he and his men willingly and expertly carried out. Because comparatively, this was probably a duty of preference, right? He's not leading a group of 100 men somewhere on the frontier fighting against those who would oppose Rome or those that Rome was trying to conquer. He wasn't stuck in some far-flung outpost. He was in a city essentially participating as a police force. He was there to keep the peace. Now, the centurion probably didn't arrive at this place without first being tested and doing some of those hard duties and assignments. He probably came to the spot because he had earned it. He had shown the ability to follow and execute orders. I see this man as a grizzled veteran. It's likely that he had been in a similar spot there to cross dozens, if not more. But clearly there was something different. Now, if we look through the centurion's eyes, this seasoned, unflinching veteran at the grim events that are unfolding... The day goes forward, and sometime around noon, around lunchtime, the sun disappears. It's dark for three hours in the middle of the day. It's as if the whole sky is groaning, is crying out, is mourning what's happening here, this tragedy. Even the earth itself is crying out about Jesus. The centurion can feel the ground shake. He is not somebody who's going to not listen to what he sees, what he hears, what he feels. Now, the soldier may not react to, to flowery speeches of conquests and emperors, and he may not be the one who values those ideals, but the reality on the ground, what he sees and what he knows to be true is what guides him. In some ways, I think the centurion kind of functions as the voice of the audience in this story. You, you think about whatever movie or story you enjoy, there's always a character that kind of voices the reaction that you or I might have. I think the centurion was that in this situation because he was experiencing incredible things, had no real understanding of it, and he is given an opportunity to respond to it. 
Now, crucifixion was not just a uh, carrying out of Roman justice. It was a show. It was a public show. We read that this was on a hill. This was in an elevated area. I kind of picture, I imagine that this would happen maybe alongside a road or even at a crossroads where there would be high traffic. Because not only are they trying to simply kill the accused, the afflicted, they're trying to send a message. They're trying to send a message that when you mess with Rome, this is what happens. And this centurion is very good at carrying that out. So in this moment, I think there's probably a, 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 a slew of insults being thrown as people are gathering around. I think people are, are yelling or shouting things. I think that people are upset because this is so distressing. But the centurion, I think he stands silently there on guard, keeping order as he watches life drain out of Jesus. He hears Jesus speaking. I think he was right there. He was within earshot. And he hears Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The centurion can't keep truth from welling up in his heart. He says, surely he was the son of God. But I don't think this was a solemn exclamation. I think this was one full of dread or fear. See, this Roman centurion isn't making a theological statement. He isn't commenting on the arguments of the temples or the marketplaces and what what role God has in the world. He is making a very political statement. See, the Roman pantheon, the whole collection of gods that they had, their whole kind of religious system was all about borrowing from the peoples that they had conquered and incorporated into their kingdom. So they would have Greek gods that they would refashion and Persian gods and Egyptian and so on and so forth. And they would also have these gods, these deities that would be localized or over certain aspects of life. But they would also have these gods, these cults set up for the emperor. See, the emperor was the living embodiment of deity, of power in the Roman world. And these divine aspirations and proclamations about the Caesar, about the emperor, survive to this day on things like coins and temples and archaeological digs. And we see how one of the main propaganda lines the Romans would use about their emperors to say that this emperor was divine was to call the Caesar the son of the gods. That in their mind, their conception that Caesar was God coming to earth, that Caesar was God's representative on earth, that Caesar was the son of the gods. And so here in this moment, this centurion with, with all of his experience all of his knowledge, a man who had risen in the ranks of the empire, where you are forbidden to question the orders, the power, the divinity of the emperor, a man who has taken and given plenty of orders that require moral flexibility, a man who is in the shock of this scene, comes to this incredibly simple but incredibly profound conclusion that whoever this Jesus is, He must be divine. He must be greater than this Caesar. So he uses the language, the sayings, the understanding at hand to declare that this Jesus is greater, is the most powerful thing in the world. It has supplanted what was, in his mind, the most powerful thing in the world. The emperor, the Caesar, that Jesus is the son of God. Now imagine how this rocks the centurion. 
The centurion, this accomplished military man, his life is built on order, on duty, on a chain of command, of giving, of following orders. And he is in the spot, he's questioning everything, and he has to come to this realization quickly that he just oversaw the death of the Son of God. I wonder if maybe this was the first time he actually physically encountered Jesus. It may have been, because Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem right before he died. But I would imagine this isn't the first time the centurion had heard of Jesus. See, the crucifixion happens during Passover week. During Passover itself, when, when thousands upon thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate that most holy of holy holidays. And they would come together, and from the Roman mindset, this was a tinderbox of revolution just looking for a spark. So I can imagine that this centurion and others in the Roman military apparatus had been briefed on people like Jesus, people with a following. In fact, I bet he also had heard about this Barabbas. He knew that there was a chance. He knew that there was a chance that there could be violence and that he would be called upon to put it down. My guess is that this centurion was expecting confrontation, was expecting to carry out some crucifixions and deal with some riots. I bet he'd been briefed about this man who carried such a passionate following. Here he is at the foot of the cross. And I would imagine that Friday morning when he got his orders, when he learned what he was going to be doing that day, I would imagine he kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Well, for crucifying someone who was leading this, his job's done. The threat has passed. The possible conflict has been avoided. A nice and tidy end to something revolutionary. I think he was looking forward to a return to normalcy, a return to things that he could expect. He had made it through that crucial week. But at the cross, something changes. And I can only imagine what happens two days, three days later when on Easter Sunday reports begin to circulate that that Jesus that they had killed and buried was now being seen alive and the tomb was empty. I wonder if the centurion realized that the revolution had actually come. The revolution was not of riots and violence. It was not of people protesting and overthrowing. But a revolution did indeed come. And he was one of the first witnesses to it. Because right under his nose, something new burst forth. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus has done and is doing. Jesus is changing things. Jesus is announcing a new way to live, to be, to move forward, to interact with one another and to act with God. When they thought they were just killing a political prisoner, when they thought they were just executing someone who was seen as a threat to Rome, they thought it was over. But they couldn't put to death what Jesus had started, and clearly they couldn't even put to death Jesus. See, at Good Friday, the kingdom of God is announced, inaugurated, it's ushered in. The new way of doing things, the kingdom of God, where things are turned upside down. The kingdom of God, where the first become last and the last become first. The kingdom of God, where forgiveness and grace are freely given and not earned. 
the kingdom of God where a new reality is laid out, the kingdom of God where new ways to treat one another with love and worth and inherent value are shown. The kingdom of God where all are valued and all are needed to participate in this grand reclamation project called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that destroys the way things were and points to that new reality. Here in this moment, the kingdom of God burst forward, inviting all to take hold and to join in. See the centurion, a pagan, a man with blood on his hands, a vital tool, a vital cog in the empire. Someone who literally was a part of that oppressive force. See, the centurion is able to accept and participate in the kingdom of God. And so are you. See, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter how much of a mess your life is now. It doesn't matter... Because at the cross, Jesus takes all of that. He sees all of that. At the cross, there is a total and complete, there is nothing we can hide. And at the cross, everything that is known by God, which is all, is all forgiven. In that moment, Jesus invites us in. He invites us to make a declaration similar to the declaration the centurion makes. For us to trust, to accept to say yes to Jesus, to say that Jesus is Lord, even when we don't fully understand it. See, the centurion says something, and he doesn't realize what he's saying, at least completely, does he? He doesn't know what this will mean. He doesn't understand the implications. He doesn't understand the depth. But neither do I. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are not saying that our life is all taken care of. Do you think the centurion's life was immediately resolved in a nice, neat way. The same way my life can often feel and is such a mess. But the centurion and myself and you, we are able to declare something, to believe something, and to move forward into something better. And this is what that churchy word salvation is all about. That no matter what's going on, no matter where you are, No matter your number of questions or doubts, no matter the amount of regret, you can be saved. You can be saved, you can be freed from that regret and shame. You can be saved, you can be freed from whatever it is that weighs you down. You can be freed from the lies you're hearing and the lies you're telling yourself. See, we can be saved to freedom. We can be saved to grace. We can be saved to love and to life. And all you have to do is say yes. So right now, you're sitting there watching us. I imagine you're sitting there and maybe you're in your living room and you still got your pajamas on from last night and you're kids are maybe even running around right now and maybe even you're like me you got one screen but you also have a second screen you're kind of doing something else I'd encourage you to put that down I'd encourage you to lock in here because we're going to pray here in a moment and we're going to pray a very simple prayer of saying yes to Jesus and I would invite anyone who has said or wants to say yes to Jesus would pray this with me whether you've done this before or you haven't 
It's a very simple prayer that is not, there's no power in the word, the words itself, but there is power in the message and this acceptance. Because just as the centurion is saying yes, so can we. So if you would, right there, wherever you are, would you pray with me? God, I believe you love me. I believe you came to this world.